So with life-centered design, what we were calling for is we need to move beyond user-centered design in the sense that we need to better understand the waste we're generating. We need to understand the energy usage. We need to take into account design for the planet as much as we take into design for users. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Krista Donaldson. She is the CEO of Equalize Health where she leads the design and scaling of disruptive medical devices to address global health inequities. To date, over 1 million people have been treated by one of Equalize Health's products in over 70 countries. In 2020, the organization kicked off a bold new strategy to significantly increase the pipeline of innovative solutions that close healthcare gaps by 2030. The author and philosopher Peter Singer, he wrote The Life That You Can Save, I love that book, He calls Equalize Health one of the world's best charities because of its cost-effectiveness and exemplary end-to-end processes. Equalize Health is based in New Delhi and San Francisco. They also have offices in Nairobi and Bangkok. Krista is a rock star. She's been recognized as a World Economic Forum technology pioneer. She's a TED speaker and a GLG Social Impact Fellow. She was named one of Fast Company's 50 Designers Shaping the Future. Prior to Equalize Health, she was an economic officer at the U.S. Department of State, where she managed part of Iraq's reconstruction portfolio. She also worked at Kickstart International and the design firm IDEO. Krista holds a master's degree in product design and PhD in mechanical engineering from Stanford University. This week, I had a chance to attend the opening of a very cool exhibit at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York City. The exhibit is called Design and Healing, Creative Responses to the Pandemic. The exhibit was curated by Ellen Lupton and her team at the Cooper Hewitt. Ellen is the co-author of Health Design Thinking. She is my friend and colleague. She was on episode one. She is a tour de force. This exhibit was also curated by Mass Design Group, one of my favorite architecture firms led by Michael Murphy. That exhibit was made possible with major support from Crystal and Chris Saka. They are amazing humans who support creative endeavors like this one. So the next time you are in New York City, go to the Cooper Hewitt Spitsonian Design Museum. Check it out. And if you like this podcast, there's one thing that you can do to support this show. Open up Apple Podcasts. You can do that right there on your phone. Give us five stars. Leave us a comment. It's the best way that you can support this show. Now, here's my conversation with Krista Donaldson. Dr. Krista Donaldson, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so stoked that you're on the show. Thanks, Vaughn. Happy to be here. I'm so curious about your journey. How does someone who worked at the State Department go to being the CEO of a nonprofit on designing medical devices? Well, it starts a bit earlier. Can I go a bit earlier? Yes, we go Um, back to Nova Scotia. (laughs) We won't go that far back. Um, I really fell in love with design in, in, well, actually in undergrad, but as often happens in a more traditional engineering degree, you get design like your very last year of university. And so you're just getting it as you're thinking about your future. 
And then, yeah, I fell in love with design, did product design at Stanford, and then got really interested in the social sector, like where the social sector and design come together. But that's, yeah, that's kind of the thread that connects everything. I worked in Kenya working on water pumps and to me, really interestingly, the manufacturing of the water pumps, which is all like mini design projects as you're manufacturing the pump itself. And then, yeah, and then the State Department, but that's a story of how I ended up on my path now. And then coming to Equalize Health, but the common thread really is design and solving social issues. So in undergrad, did you think about design? Like that was a... It's very abstract. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was theoretical. Half the project was working on a NASA nose cone and it was all computer modeling. We didn't do any prototyping. What, really wait, what cool is that? What's a NASA? NASA nose cone? What is that? So like for a rocket. So uh, it was a nose cone for a rocket and we had to design it. And you know, there's really cool, you know, heat implications and atmospheric changes and all sorts of things. But it was theoretical, but I loved it. I loved how open-ended it was. I loved the assumption that there are solutions out there, which, you know, are all these tenets of design. And even though it didn't have a physical making aspect of that project, I just fell in love with like the thinking, even though that was like my very early understanding of what design is and how designers work. And you had studied, was it mecha mechanical engineering? Is that yes, right? Yes, mechanical Vanderbilt? engineering. Yeah. And then how do you make that jump to Stanford where you got a PhD in product mechanical engineering design oh, yeah. man, mechanical so wanted, engineering. okay yeah no but i did a bit of a meandering road i came to grad school thinking i wanted to do finite element analysis for those of you who don't know what is that <laughs> i have no I, I, I don't know what that is <laughs> it's computer modeling to understand stresses and strains in mechanics essentially and then in, in products or different things and it, it's really to me it was really cool because you could design something and then you could run it through software to understand how it's going to perform and where problems would be but i realized like as i dug into it i just really love the design aspect um but i i pivoted at stanford into product design which required staying an extra year. And then I so fell in love with what we now call design thinking, but, you know, the design tools, the methodologies, like how designers think that I did stay for a PhD and my PhD was in mechanical engineering design. But the topic was looking at design as a means of empowerment, economic empowerment in low-income areas. Got it. And when you're doing your PhD at Stanford, was the D school like was You're gonna already be here. <laughs> it, beca it became a thing. So I'm like one of those people. I was there for my PhD just before the D school got started. Okay. And so by the time I left, the D school was up and running. I returned from Kenya, which is where I did my PhD research, and the D school was up and running. Um, the design for extreme affordability class was happening, which is a really cool class. And just and that's really, a, you know, yeah, I want to talk about that class because I'm a big fan of that class. I think you did you teach it with David Jenka at one point? It was I, I was a contributor. So I used to come in and talk a little bit about like designing the water pump in Kenya and the manufacturing and all the thinking and not just the thinking around the design of the product itself, but something I think Stanford's really good at, but thinking about the business model and what's the pathway to scale and what are all the things that need to go into place? Like what are the motivations of the different stakeholders so that the product does reach impact? Mm. Why did you jump into the nonprofit sector? And it seems like uh, a lot of people who go to Stanford or who are in the Bay Area jump and start their own company and make like <laughs> millions of dollars, <laughs> you know? I, that's my perspective being on an East Coaster every time I go to the yeah. Bay Area. That that's like seems like the thing to do. Yeah, no, and I certainly got asked why I wasn't like joining um, a startup. 
Well, I'll tell you how I was thinking is I just really love the nature of problem solving. And I think as more as I understood design tools, and this is like pre-engineers without borders, again, I'm dating myself, all these areas where there was looking at how can technical problems be solved? How can, again, like social justice or social issues be solved potentially with design? And at the time, I was just so excited about the aspect of really truly understanding needs because so much of, you know, service work and community was still very top down. And even if you look at like what USAID was doing, like still like we, the American people are giving you this thing, you're beneficiaries, you're not customers or users or people with needs and hopes and dignity. And so that was the era back then. And we're seeing real changes now, but it was, to me, it was using design tools to be able to solve these in more meaningful ways. I guess with Equalize Health, did you always start off in medical devices or did you no. do other types of products before medical devices? Yeah, so before we were Equalize Health, we were called DREV, which uh -huh. is short for Design Revolution. And we started out as a general product development um, or product development for good. And it's so along a similar model of design for extreme affordability class at Stanford. And what we found, though, very quickly, we were working on healthcare products and technologies related to that. And as someone who has a medical parent, but trained as an engineer, I was like, really? Like, there's all these unknowns in healthcare. Like, and I'll give you an example, like not full understanding about how to efficiently treat babies with jaundice. Like from an engineering standpoint, you think that would be really understood and diagnosis, treatment and babies on our way. But for example, 10, 15 years ago, we did not understand the quality of blue light needed to most efficiently treat newborns. Mm. And so I was intrigued by the fact that there were a lot of unknowns in healthcare, but I think that also contributed to how there were needs in the broader community for quality devices that met local context. What do you think about this need for introducing design in healthcare? When, because when I, when I look at healthcare, I get so freaking frustrated. There's so many. <laughs> I get elements. freaking frustrated, and I'm not like you in healthcare. I yeah, like, you know, every, everything from the, of healthcare. the products, the services, the physical yeah. spaces that there is no design thread that runs through these different offerings in healthcare and kind of like the experiences and. Isn't it frustrating for you with a who, who has such expertise in design to enter into the space that I, I live and breathe? <laughs> I want to pick up actually on something you said, which is a thread that runs through healthcare. And I do see how design in healthcare is being treated as it's still like an add-on or mm. it's brought in for part of the consideration, but it's not integrated into the delivery of health and how you know, we interact with patients. So totally. and um, can you give me an example of, of that? Cause I, it's, you're totally right. It has designed. It's just this <laughs> Sure, I'll give you an example. It's like, we'll bring in designers to design a really nice waiting room. Yes. <laughs> you know, but like, actually let's think about how hard is it to park the car and to walk into the office? Like, is there shade? If you're in a warm climate, is there protection from snow? Like how close is it to the like closest transportation? What's the entire user journey? And then, you know, understanding the needs of all the different people who work in the office and how does that contribute to delivering quality care, right? Which is different. And so like, when you talk about the thread and I mean, imagine a world 
where all these considerations happen. It wasn't just like, oh, let's design a nice waiting room or you know, even more sophisticated thinking, but still not integrated fully into the delivery of quality. Can you speak about your process and how the design threads through all the uh, medical products that you d- develop at Equalize Health? Sure. Yeah. And I would say you might be giving healthcare a bit of a hard time. I would say global health is even slower (laughs) in adopting design and particularly in integrating it through. But in terms of how we think about healthcare and the design, it's, I mean, it's very design oriented in the sense of like, we'll learn about a problem and we always highly, more highly weight problems that are identified by frontline healthcare workers, users of any type. It could be like the repair person. And then we vet the problem, meaning like how common a problem is it? Is it just at this hospital? Is it just in this region? Is it a global problem? And we like global problems because to us, that's where the big system change. And then it's a lot of like the user and market research, making sure it's like the right problem for us to solve. Like who are the partners we need to work with? And then understanding like what concepts are and Equalize Health, we went through a bit of a strategy shift because we were seeing so many great ideas coming from doctors and other innovators. And so whereas before, like we were generating a lot of the concepts, now we really value concepts and partnerships with innovators who have ideas. And then it's like the more traditional, like hardware design process when it's hardware, like the iterations and all that sort of thing. But I would say, you know, I won't go through all the details of like getting their product to market with the regulatory and everything. But the one thing mm-hmm. I will say is that I think design thinking is so critical for commercial pathways or determining mm-hmm. like how the product will reach people, how it's used, all these things around the patient journey, but really around the market journey too. What does, what do distributors need? What do service people need? All that sort of thing to get it to people and make sure it's sustained in use. Is this approach of a design human-centered approach, is that common or in medical device companies? I think it varies. <laughs> I think a lot of people say it's common, but you know, I, there's always trade-offs like any design process. And I think, I hate to say it, but I think the users lose out in a lot of those trade-offs. Mm. And I think that's why- like, what, have, what do you mean? Can you give me an example? Yeah, sure. And I think that, and that's why Equalized Health exists in the end is because, for example, you take CPAP, continuous positive air pressure, mm-hmm. that's been a treatment for babies for 50 years. It is largely unavailable in public hospitals in low-income countries. And so that's like a very- clear example and that the technology exists. There are lots of great medical device companies that can design products to meet that need, but yet even many of the products that are designed for low income scenarios do not meet the needs of the clinicians who need CPAPs to treat babies. Mm. And I'll give you an example of that. Many devices require proprietary consumables. Um, If you're at a rural hospital in Rwanda and you've had two different devices donated to you, Mm -hmm. you now have a supply chain issue usually of getting those proprietary consumables to make sure that those CPAPs work. Mm. And those are very expensive to get those consumables. Mm. Another situation is like, does this device assume that you have access to oxygen? Um, Okay, if you have wall oxygen, like many hospitals, like all hospitals do here in the US, but you know, maybe the wall oxygen is not consistent. Maybe there isn't wall oxygen. How do you ensure that you can still deliver CPAP in these different environments? Yeah. And my limited experience of going to some other countries and looking at their hospitals, there is a graveyard of donated US medical equipment to those hospitals because often if they break down, no one can service them. 
and exactly they're right. too expensive. They end up not being used. And so you developed CPAP called Flowlight that meets some of those challenges. And and just to give the listening audience a perspective on so premature babies who are born with the um, RDS, respiratory distress, distress syndrome, if they don't get oxygen, like almost all of them die. Right. And all you have to do is give them freaking oxygen through the nose, and it is literally life saving. How did flow light enter into this gap that you saw that wasn't being met in some of these countries? Yeah, for us, we have first developed a phototherapy device to treat newborn jaundice, and that product has done very well. And I mention that because it's much easier doing user research when you can point to a device and be like, oh, we designed that. And the nurses are like, oh, we love that device. How can we help you? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we're always very mindful of like how busy people are, but really understanding the needs. But we heard time and time again from doctors, from nurses, from the former Rwandan minister of health, like we need CPAP and we need CPAP that is a standard of care. It's not like like good enough, which is another problem we have in global health is uh, designing devices that are not good enough quality yeah. for low income areas, but in it, and it also can handle the context. And I'll tell you one of the most um, moving experiences a team member had with a doctor was when he said, oh, we really need CPAP in our hospital. I'm a pediatrician. I'm not able to treat babies. And she says, well, when you don't have CPAP, what do you do? And he says, I can only pray for them. Oh, my gosh. So you're right. We see oxygen delivered, but as you know, like you need, you really need blended air. Like you need mm -hmm. to, because we've also heard, we had one Indian doctor say to us, I know that babies are at risk of ROP retinopathy. You'll probably know the acronym better, but you know, where babies can go blind if they have too much oxygen, but mm -hmm. he said, I'd rather save a baby's life, even if it means she'll mm -hmm. be born. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know how your device doesn't rely upon that proprietary technology. So if it gets broken, can they fix it there? Or yeah, do they have so, to like ship it out back to the US? Or well, like how does, how does that happen? Yeah. So I'll mention a few things because you're talking about two different two different features. One okay. is design for serviceability, right? This is recognizing like what do what do markets have easy access to? So this is like filters and it's consumables and really understanding what what consumables are being used in different markets. So the serviceability, if it's really bad, yes, of course you'll have to call a local distributor, but we think about that too, because we want to make sure that servicers are incentivized to go out and service hospitals. But on the consumables, our device runs a bit of a calibration at the beginning so that it understands what the resistance is in the tubes and what kind of tubes or consumables it's the device is managing. And then it goes, it starts to function. Mm. And this is, I mean, it's probably no surprise to you, but in many markets, because the proprietary consumables aren't affordable or aren't accessible, they'll just buy whatever the cheapest one is yeah. and use it on the device, whether or not it's calibrated for that consumable. I love this principle of design for serviceability. I mean, you could apply that right here at home. I mean, one example is early on in the pandemic, uh, we were using uh, purified air respirators, you know, those kind of, for the listening audience, the, the masks, the hoods that blew in air. Uh, yeah. So when we were in patients with COVID, we would not be infected with the virus. And the helmet is attached to a hose that blows air into the helmet. And there's one little plastic ring that kept on breaking. And it's because oh, that plastic ring kept on breaking, 
we couldn't use it. And yeah. and the supply chain was totally busted up, right? We could not get replacement parts from the manufacturer. And so what we did was we, we actually 3D printed these parts. And it was so I simple to it. do. It was an easy hack. We were able to do it. We open sourced that, put on a website. And then we got a cease and desist letter from this what? manufacturer who says, <laughs> you cannot do that. And I'm thinking, are you freaking crazy? We asked you multiple times to send us this piece of plastic and you couldn't. And we needed this equipment's life saving and we needed this in simple a pandemic. Hack. In a <laughs> pandemic. And I'm like, I, I I know we're not the only hospital who's probably facing this issue because there's the supply chain was broken. Yeah. And I so I love this idea for design for serviceability and we could apply these same principles of global health to the U.S. healthcare market. Yeah, and I don't know if we're going to keep that story in there, if it's going to get us in trouble, but whatever. I get well, so I, I got so say, angry. I, love that story. I got so I, and angry. I don't blame you. I'm getting angry listening to it. And I will say, like, imagine you're a hospital in rural India. You don't have access to, to a 3D printer, so that's how devices end up <sighs> in equipment graveyards, right? And the shame is, it could be something like that could solve the issue. But I'll mention one other thing. I love that you 3D printed it because when we see clinicians like you designing things, it is a signal to us at Equalize Health that it's a real need. And mm. those are some of our favorite problems to work on. And so, for example, with the phototherapy, we saw doctors and technicians and hospitals with very little access to resources building their own phototherapy devices. You see homemade CPAP. I don't know if you've seen homemade CPAPs, but it's like a bottle with a tube in there to like get no, the bubbling pressure. No, you can make it? What? You can, yeah, you can. I, again, like you're going to have retinopathy issues, but, but yeah, I can send you photos. But when we see these homemade devices that clinicians have come up with, it's a real indication that this is an important problem. And really, like, it's such an important problem that they're developing their own solutions. Mm. And doctors are great innovators, by the way, and nurses. Especially nurses, because they spend most time with patients. Well, they're jerry-rigging everything yeah. all the time and dealing with, like, how many buzzers and alarms. And So is that part of your team's design research that you go in and take a look oh, at yeah. some of these hacks and DIY solutions and go, hey, it's there's like a my- there's an unmet need here? Yes. And I'll tell you one of my favorite um, things that I noticed. We've never done this with a project, but we were... I was in a hospital, and I, it was rural India, and this is now several years ago, and it was a Sunday. It was very quiet. One of the things I've learned is that in some places where there isn't enough capacity, and this is many hospitals, they just have so many patients relative to the clinician staff. Mm. But a lot of times parents won't bring kids on a weekend and the hospitals won't admit kids. And I looked over, I was talking to a nurse who was really lovely and spending a little bit of time with me. I looked over and there's all these little like squares on the wall. And I said to her, I said, what are the squares on the wall? She goes, we're so busy on Mondays that I'm preparing the tape. So she was, she, when she had a little, a few spare moments, she would like cut medical tape Okay. and she was getting it ready so that for whatever she needed to do Monday, they didn't have to like actually go through the motion of measuring it and cutting it and measuring. They just had it like literally all stuck to the wall so they could just peel one off and then use it. Wow. And I love that too, because like here you have amazing problem solving. But also, like, I never would have thought like that would have been an issue. And it was just more of an issue around like, how do you hold like eye cover on for phototherapy? You know, there was, it was addressing other problems. Like, you know, in design, we talk about like, what's the real problem? Like there's yeah. this big problem, but that's not really the problem. It's like dig down. So there's lots of problems it was solving, but I just thought it was fascinating and um, just amazed by her ingenuity and in trying to solve it when she had free time. How many organizations are there like, Equalize Health, who who do what you do, because I can't think of any of them. And I was 
you know, reading about your organization, I was like thinking, what other groups are out there doing this? Because I do not see the for-profit medical device companies working on their big problems, but, you know, the markets aren't necessarily that profitable. Like they could create a medical product to serve the needs of these users, but they probably won't make a lot of money off of it. And so those devices don't end up getting made. Yeah, I hope that'll change, Vaughn. We work with the private sector and we have a partnership with Flowlight with Draeger in Germany. And we're seeing an interest of Draeger and that some of the other big med tech companies of wanting to move into emerging markets. Mm -hmm. And I think understandably from their standpoint, they have all this medical technology, but it does need a hard look and it needs really good user research and really good market research to design for that environment or for the different environments. And the old way of managing this, which you've probably seen, which again, equipment graveyards in the background is let's take our Western device, defeature it, and then try and sell it in India, yeah. right? Or try and oh. sell it wherever. And that doesn't make sense either, right? Because yeah. it's not that Indian hospitals or public hospitals or rulers need less features. They need different features or they need greater durability, greater affordability. Maybe it needs to be more lightweight for whatever reasons. Healthcare, and healthcare you, is so local. You can't even do that, I think, in the yeah. U.S. market. Like, you know, what we do here in Philly is probably different than what they do in Oklahoma versus what they do in California. Like, healthcare is so local. Spoken you, by a true user, user-centered <laughs> designer. Thank you. <laughs> and especially when you take it to a different country. I mean, you got to create a new type of device. These are big countries. Uh, their needs vary significantly, too, between public and private and regions and all sorts of things. Do you have any favorite devices that you are currently working on that are coming on or some of your past favorite devices that you can talk about? I mean, I got to tell you, every one of them's like a baby, <laughs> which is probably not the right thing for a designer to say, because we try and maintain like our lack of bias, but we do have um, a pretty rigid gate system so that by the time we are looking at launching something, it's, we, we can get emotionally attached to it. I, I think I love all of them. I'm very excited about our CPAP. It's a critical care device. The incentives in global health are actually not structured to to develop critical care devices, which is a bit ironic given the potential impact that comes from critical care. So, Wait, um, what does that mean? No one, the, yeah, no one's so gonna just, pay for it? Well, yeah, I think it's partly because product development is still a bit of a mystery in global health funding. And even though there's a lot of support of innovation, often the prerequisite to funding is user data. But of course, like from a developer standpoint, like you do not wanna put a critical care device on a child or on any patient until it is so well designed, sure. right? And it passes all the safety, it's, it's really ready. But yeah. to get to that point to collect data, that's like years yeah. and probably millions of dollars. So it's, it's like not... a 10-year lead time and in, in often for like Yeah, I mean, hopefully devices. not that much for us. But yeah, I mean, you're looking at three to four years of unfunded work to get to a place where you have data that you can go back to you know, funders and say, hey, fund this global health problem. So that's an example of like where we have misaligned incentives. And so what ends up happening is a lot of global health products that don't kind of catch on in popularity with a group of donors. There's a tendency to design devices that are not critical care because it's easier to get to that user data faster mm. and get the project mm. funded. So I have a real sweet spot for our CPAP because we have several donors who've been with us a really long time who believe in the methods and yeah, and we've been able to develop what is a standard of care device 
that should work in like almost every environment, mm -hmm. recognizing challenges with oxygen, challenges with power, dusty environments, you know, that we talked about consumables, all sorts of things. And that will be, as far as I know, one of the first, it's always hard to say the first, but we believe one of the first standard of care devices that is designed for that environment. I'm curious to know who decides to work at Equalize Health. What type of people do you look for? Well, I think like any design organization, the first thing we look for is uh, people with a lot of humility and who are good listeners. So that's the starting place. But we, in terms of skill sets, it's a range. And we have technical people, we have business people, we have uh, public health people who focus on like understanding impact because as we look at future projects we're trying to understand is where can we have the most impact? Where can we have the greatest good? How can we have a good portfolio mix so that we're mitigating our risk and, and also achieving the impact we can set out to achieve? Mm. So we're a mix of skills. And I also like to think you've heard of like the T-shaped designers where you have a lot of broad skills and then you go deep in one area. And oh, yeah. I think that's true for us too. I want to shift gears and talk about an article that you were a co-author on. It's called What's Next in Design for Global Health? How Design and Global Health Must Adapt for a Preferable Future. And one of the co-authors is Michael Gigi. He was on episode 24 of Design Lab. I love we him. love him. And I love, love this article. Um, one Thank one you. line that was provocative was, design practice must evolve itself toward new paradigms of life-centered design and speculative design. What does that mean <laughs> for those who haven't <laughs> read the article? Like, walk us through yeah. that. I, I, I read it, so I have an understanding of it, but can you unpack that line for yes. us? Yeah, and I'll just to give some context of what the paper was about was like, where are we going and how does global health need to evolve? And we wanted to be really clear that design itself too must evolve. And we as designers, speaking of to humility, we need to recognize that we, our field should continue to evolve. So with life-centered design, what we were calling for is we need to move beyond user-centered design in the sense that we need to better understand the waste we're generating. We need to understand the energy usage. We need to design, we need to take into account design for the planet as much as we take into design for users. And we have an amazing photo in the journal article from a Dutch artist. Let me see if I can find her name. Maria Kojic. I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly. Don't but ask she me saved... to pronounce it. <laughs> well, What's important is that she collected all the medical waste from two breast cancer surgeries and it surrounds her on a gym floor and you can't see me, but I'm waving my arms around me. And, you know, we have so much waste in healthcare. So much waste. Every time we run a code, I look at the floor, it is littered with plastic and all this stuff gets thrown away. We can't reuse it. Yep. And in, in the U.S., we have very tight regulations that we hope people follow. I can tell you when I lived in Nairobi a lot, we used to run in Karua Forest. And one time, I don't remember what happened. I was chasing a dog and I went in behind and just behind the, the trail, it was clear that a hospital had been dumping medical waste in the forest. And, and, you know, not every place has the ability to dump it. And I'm sure that's not happening anymore. And I wrote a little article to the newspaper and they published it, <laughs> but <laughs> You know, medical waste is a big problem. What is speculative design Let's and how, does, speculative how design. does that apply yeah. to global health? Like what the, I've, ne I've never seen, I've never seen those mesh before. So I love that you're talking about this. We're bringing this these in. Paper yeah. on global health. They talk about speculative design. I love that. 
Yeah, so speculative design is thinking about the future. And what we did is we used a framework for, from some futurists and they talk about how every organization and leadership in every organization should, should sit down and think about events that could happen in the future. And there are, if things continue on their current trend line, like what could happen in like five years? And they're talking about like the midterm, so like five mm -hmm. to 10 years. And you and, know, and that's like uh, probable events, I think. Exactly. Like it. probable, exactly probable. There's also preferable things. So maybe a mm. preferable thing that would happen is that like we're seeing with the, the malaria vaccine, right? Yeah. Like there are great things that happen too. And then there are wild cards, which are just things like nobody saw coming. And it's funny because COVID is a bit of like probable because people were certainly alerting us about it. But I think yeah. for some of us, you know, our head was not in that world. It was a wild card and we weren't prepared for that. But speculative design asks leaders and senior leadership in an organization to sit down and think about what are these events that can happen in future? And then how as an organization might we respond to them? And what's cool about this exercise is it forces a reckoning of your organizational values. Like, what do you care about? Like, how would you respond in these situations? And if you do, like my colleague, she's my co-author on this paper, they even went so far as prototyping some solutions to, to like a certain scenario that might happen. But again, it prompted these conversations around values and preparedness and decisions that might be made. The cool thing about this kind of speculative design thinking is that the theory is that as you're more prepared for the future, you're also helping shape the future. I love for that. example, isn't that cool? So, yeah. even, so let's say we, we as a society had been doing speculative design around a pandemic. <laughs> we would have had enough PPEs, right? Like we yeah. would have been ready to deploy ventilators. Our healthcare workers who weren't confident in like ventilator skills or respiratory support would have had those skills. Yeah. And so that's the We would have secured of, supply chains. We, yeah. yeah. You wouldn't have had to worry about your O-ring. <laughs> I would have been 3D printing them. Yeah, exactly. Why? So that, why, that's the why doesn't that happen? Why is everything in healthcare so reactionary? Reactive. That's a really good question. I don't know. I, maybe I'd love to hear from you. Why do you think it is like? We, I, we're putting on fires all the time. I, I feel. Is it a comfort with that? Is it a comfort I, with putting on fires? I think it is. We're so busy putting out fires that there is almost no space to think about, okay, what is that future state and how do we prepare for it? And I think the easy argument would be, well, there's not funding for it, right? But right. I think it goes more than that, right? Because we would find ways to fund it if we cared about how we prepare for a better future. And I feel like we're we're putting out fires every single day that there's not this space to thinking about how do we design a better future and that's why i love designers like you and because you think about these future states and how we can prepare for them and i feel like we don't do that in healthcare and it frustrates the heck out of me <laughs> so i i love that you talk about that in in the paper and how does that look like practically for us and who are practitioners? Like, how do we apply speculative design in our daily lives? I think the first thing is, I know it's finding the time, right? And when you were saying that, you're making me think like when I was a young designer, one of the things I noticed as I worked in different cultures is how different cultures have different perspectives on time importance. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean like how far out they're looking. And no surprise, 
societies that have less money and less resources take a shorter time perspective, right? Because they're worried about like their next meal or they're worried about their next week of meals. But you're making me think that different disciplines and domains like maybe have their own time perspective. So I think maybe like in the classic like designer way, like there's some self-awareness and I'm referencing here for those who went through like the Stanford program, we had a professor, Bernie Roth, who said, we can't design for others unless we know ourselves, <laughs> which I love. Oh, I love that. Can you say that, that again? Good? Yeah. It's hard to, like, it's difficult to design for others if you don't know. I love that. And then something like he, and Bernie wrote a book, it's called The Achievement Habit, but it's based on his class, Designer and Society. And it's something, he's a really good friend of mine. He's a huge mentor and a really good friend, but it's also something that I've found as I've gotten older and go through different stages of life, I have to revisit as a designer because mm. we change and we got to be self-aware as we change too. Anyway, back to your question, which is around like, what can we do? I think it's recognizing like how we value time, deliberately putting time aside and then spending some time thinking about it. And to me, it's like in the same place as creativity. Like you have to protect your energy to be able to have like a good exercise or to have like a good brainstorm or have a good discussion to really mm. think about that. Also in the paper, you talk about putting the patient in the center of care. How do you do that? Well, that's an interesting one because, and that comes from our friend, Michael Njiji, um, who has so many interesting experiences, but I think that's an interesting one because I think we think, and I say we as like healthcare designers and medical practitioners, we think we're putting the patient in the center of care. And often we are, but it goes back to like, how do the incentives line up, right? And on like a macroeconomic level, or maybe not even macro, but like on an economic level, let's just say it's really around what drives profitability and profitability actually often comes from a continuously unwell population. Yeah. So how can we like, we, I don't we know, make can, our money off of sick people. Exactly. How can we make money off of well people and preventative healthcare? But on a, you know, on a user level or on a patient level, it's like what best serves their needs. You know, in the paper, we talk about examples around how some preventative healthcare, like the scare tactics did not work. Like AIDS in 19, in the 1990s in Africa, it was like scary, like gaunt people, these ads, and it didn't really do anything. If anything, it made people avoid it and have avoidance behavior around AIDS and HIV. And good examples are, for example, there was a study on the East Coast of the US around free access to gyms in neighborhoods where people lived. And this was with Latin, Latinx community. And also some of you may, some of your listeners may know about in Senegal, there's a real culture around exercise. There's exercise equipment, like on the beach or near the beach, there's like groups that meet on the beach. But again, it's like this aspect of like fitting into someone's lifestyle, easy to access. And I think that's also putting power back in the hands of the user and the patient. I want to ask you a question about the role of creativity in your job. You're a CEO of a nonprofit organization making medical devices. Do you consider yourself a creative person? Is creativity important in your work? Oh, I love, yes, absolutely. And it's not just important in like design of things, but it's in figuring out creative licensing agreements or creative commercial partnerships. And to me, creativity, and this is what I love about design, is it, you know, thinking outside of the status quo, like there's certain ways to do licensing agreements. Well, let's challenge that. How do, how can we understand this partner's incentives with our incentives and creatively come up with terms to solve that problem? And that's the thing, one of the things I love about design is like the creativity aspects and the problems, like you can apply to any part of your life, not just like 
making widgets. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. No guest has ever talked about licensing agreements and creativity and the relationship <laughs> between them. So I, I love that. Yeah. And my final question to you is how might we design a healthier life? Oh, that's a good one. I, you know, to design a healthier life, I think a designers knowing themselves, but really in service of people and the planet. So how do we make it easy for people to do the right thing? How can we make it financially rewarding for people to be healthy? I love that. Isn't there a stat that Equalize Health is one of the most effective nonprofit organizations? Am I, am I saying that yeah. right? You are, yeah. And thank you for asking that. Peter Singer, who is very I well love known. Peter in, Singer, yeah. Yes. Oh, good. Yes. And his effective altruism movement. And he looks at where can you do the most good for your money. And our model is such that, yes, you help us with the R&D and develop these products, but in solutions, it's not just products. Some of we do telemetry and we do other things. And then we build a highly scalable model. And just to give you a sense, we surpassed 1.3 million patients treated this, this year. Amazing. And yeah, and we're a $4 million organization. So, so you can go to your website, equalizehealth.org and donate, make you an can. end of your Thank contribution. You. Yes. So yes, do it. It's an amazing timing. organization <laughs> and you should just check out the website. So it's so cool. There's case studies on all of your medical devices and donate a uh, great way to have that end of your gift. Thank you, Bon. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm such a huge fan of you oh. and Equalize Health. Really appreciate it. And this is so fun. Thank you so much. You can find Krista Donaldson on Twitter at KMD underscore DREV and reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram on Twitter. I can be found at B-O-N-K-U, Instagram D-R-B-O-N-K-U. And remember, open up Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you soon.